Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Don't follow your passion. A lot of people talk about find what you're passionate about and do what you love. Follow your skill set. I don't do morning meditation. I don't make my bed. I don't look at the stars and thank heavens for my life. I just get on with life. What do you think is the fastest way for someone to get their first $100,000? The fastest way to get to first $100,000 is... Timo Armu started his first businesses when he was just 14. And by the time he was 27, he sold his company Fanbytes for tens of millions of dollars. Today, Timo reveals the four simple steps to becoming a multimillionaire, why following your passion is a scam, and how a nine to five is keeping you poor. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You know me, video is an integral part of my business, and the free content I post online, like my popular five-day savings challenge, are all video-based and have allowed me to help millions of people get better with their money. So I wanna share with you a tool that I really trust when it comes to hosting my videos online. It's called Wistia, a complete video marketing platform that has intuitive video hosting and creation tools, in-depth analytics, and experts on hand for support and inspiration. Simply upload your videos and take full advantage of a ton of features that take the stress out of video. They've got everything you could need and more. Recording, editing, closed captions so that your videos are more accessible and easier to watch on social media, a brandable video player, and email forms for lead gen. To learn more and try it out, go to wistia.com Erica. W-I-S-T-I-A, wistia.com slash Erica, and follow their socials at Wistia. I'll also put a link in the show notes for you. What do you think you learned about money growing up that helped you to become this multimillionaire by 27? I think I learned that the amount of money you make is directly linked to how valuable the skills that you have are. So at 17, I learned about sales and selling very small services. Then I laid on top of it marketing. Then I laid on top of it how to manage people. Then that was what then led to my business, which then I learned how to raise money. 
So every single year I was stacking up more and more skills. And eventually that then led me to create a business, which then ended up making me a multimillionaire. So at 17, I started an online blog called Entrepreneur Express. And it was basically an online business media publication. And the way that I drove traffic through it was through creating really large Facebook pages around inspiration and motivation. And then I would take articles from the blog, put it in the Facebook page, and that would drive people directly to the site. And in 11 months, I got approached by an American agency called Horizon Media, who then wanted to buy the blog for 110000 And I, at 17 years old, was like, oh my God, I have discovered magic. Someone took an idea I had 11 months ago and said, here's more money than you've seen in your life. And instantly I thought, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. But in there, what I did was I discovered an arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Facebook 10 years ago was quite cheap. And so I knew I could get the eyeballs from there to my site. And then at 21 was when I started Fanbytes. And here's the truth. I actually stole my multi-million dollar idea. I saw a company in America doing something similar to what Fanbytes was doing. And I thought, hmm, they're doing this in the US. I'm going to do it in the UK. And I think that's actually very good advice for a lot of people who want to start their companies, which is that you actually don't have to think about anything original. You can just look out there, see what's working, and then tweak it in your own way. That's very bold of you to admit. Oh, I saw this idea. So many of my friends who have become immensely rich never had an original idea. All they've done is seen something work elsewhere, and then they've either taken it to a new country or they've taken it to a new industry. And what exactly did Fanbytes do? Fanbytes started in 2017. And what we identified was their rise of influencer marketing. And the rise of people like yourself who had built really passionate audiences around a specific topic. We realized that brands would want to tap into that particular segment. And so we built software and services to help brands to connect with them. So for example, McDonald's might want to know who are the most influential people who talk about the McFlurry. We want to work with them. And then what our software would do is we'd target them, we'd be able to invite them to campaigns and then launch big scale campaigns for brands. And so that was something I started in my second year of university with just me. Then I recruited my co-founder. And then after five and a half years, we took it to a team of 75 people, eight figures in revenue, and then we sold it last year. Wow. And so did you work throughout college? Yes. I started Fanbyte in my second year of university. And I think that was a very good time to start it because I didn't really have any commitments. I was so young that I almost didn't know what bad looked like and I didn't know what good looked like. And so I just thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I can still get a job. I think that mentality of what's the worst that could happen is a mentality more people should adopt. Because the truth is, in most cases, even if you try an idea and it doesn't work, what's the worst that could happen? You just try again or you just go get a job somewhere and then you try again. Yeah, but a lot of people don't have that. And I think you get more risk averse as you get older. Because I I also in law school started a company, failed very quickly. But I had this almost naive optimism that, okay, even if it goes wrong, like not a big deal. And almost this fearlessness. I remember like I would go to conferences and boldly walk up to the key players in the real estate industry that I needed to speak to and be like, hello, I'm Erica Kohlberg. Nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
What's really amazing is what is possible when you tell yourself that everyone is also faking it. I've been in rooms with some of the most successful people in the UK, and it's so funny how similar they are in terms of having self-doubt, having failed business ideas, having failed side hustles, having anxiety. But then if you just look at them from afar, they look like the finished article. And if you almost internalize and tell yourself that everyone is also feeling a bit nervous, a bit anxious, has that bit of self-doubt, you will then push yourself even further. It's also quite similar to business. Every single sale that I made, even my first ever sale I made for 300 pounds, I was shaking on the phone telling the person it would be 300 pounds. <laughs> and then years afterwards, I'm signing checks for 300 grand for campaigns. It is the same person. I just built enough evidence in myself that I could do it. And so for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, often you can get intimidated because you look at the finished article and you go, well, I possibly can't do that. However, if you start very small, the smallest step possible, and then you incrementally build enough evidence to go to the next step, that's the way that you'd be able to actually then become successful in something. If you had to condense it down to three skills that you have that distinguished you from those who do not become multimillionaires at such a young age, what do you think they are? Number one, a belief that success was not discriminatory. Number two was I ruthlessly just focus on inputs. I just focus on acquiring skills, which at some point will become valuable, which I can swap for money. And number three, I was extremely shameless. I did not care about looking dumb or looking stupid or asking very basic questions. And I think people really warmed to that because they understood that I was a very genuine person who wanted to learn. That third bit, I think, holds a lot of people back because they are anxious or scared about looking stupid. But when you realize that it's all in your head, looking stupid is all in your head and no one really cares, then you will just live life with a lot more liberation. Another thing I really liked that you said was how you focused on input rather than output. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So one of my beliefs is that business success, life success just comes down to the actions that you actually make. And so rather than caring about what the output is, if you just focus on having the skills and the mindset of the type of person who becomes successful, then you would eventually get to your end goal. One of the things that I do is every month I have a Wikipedia entry that I write in third person. So for example, I might say, in the month of July, Timothy did XYZ. The reason I do that is that it forces me to objectively look and see whether the actions that I did actually then culminate in the result that I want. And so if, for example, it was, I want to get more muscles or I want to be stronger, the entry should be, Timothy worked out four days a week, he ate a lot of protein and he walked 10,000 steps every day. And if he did that, there is literally no way on earth that he would not get to the end goal. So that's what I mean by focusing on the inputs rather than the outputs. Lots of people, they think about things like, I want to make money. And then they just think about that end goal of becoming rich or becoming wealthy. Whereas what you should be saying is, what are the attributes and the skills and the habits of someone who is rich and wealthy? 
And then how do I exhibit those actual traits and attributes? Because just by doing those, I know the outcome will take care of itself. I like the Wikipedia entry thing. How does that work in your business, for example, where things aren't as linear? Like, for example, the working out example, pretty clear. If yes. you eat more protein, work out more, yeah. you're going to get the outcome that you desire. But for business, it's a lot of using your intuition to decide what is the best use of your time this month yeah. to get the business outcome that you want. So how do you think about that? I started doing this when I started Fanbytes. And over time, I came to realize that what I was writing in the Wikipedia were the key decisions I had to make. And those key decisions were then things that influenced the rest of the organization. And so a very clear example might have been in May, Timothy then saw an employee who was not working out that well. Timothy decided then to let them go because he realized that was affecting the culture of the whole business. And so in there, what happened was I focused more on the decisions I had to make throughout that month. And of course, those decisions, the consequence of that were then felt throughout the organization. But the whole idea of the wiki entry is to just tell and look at yourself very objectively and go, hmm, those decisions, those actions I made in the last month, are they actually really conducive to the thing that I want? And after you do that for a few months, if you realize they're not, then you know that there's something that you have to change. So that's how I actually applied it through business. Yeah. And I think it's so easy to spend a lot of time on the trivial things that don't matter. And then your time is all used up. So those big decisions, the things that actually matter, don't get prioritized. Because oftentimes when I feel like I'm getting off track with my business, I use something called Clockify. It's this free mm. app that tracks your time. And I have like 10 different categories. You know, one is for this business, one is for social media, yeah. one is for the podcast. And I see exactly where my time is going to the minute. Because that's yeah. what I did as a lawyer. Like when you bill clients, you bill by every six minutes. So I was very used to tracking my time. And then I see, okay, social media is, let's say, number one most important. But wait a second, I'm only spending three hours a week on yeah. it. So there's a mismatch here. Yeah, I mean, being able to track your time and being able to say, well, I know this is important. Am I actually applying the level of effort to the thing that I'm deeming to be most important? It's a huge eye-opener, and it can be applied in business, it can be applied in dating, it can be applied in any part of your life. Like, what is important to you? And then make sure that you are applying the right level of focus to the things that are important to you. What is something that you wish you would have learned at 20 that would have accelerated your growth even more? This is going to sound very strange, but I wish I had worked for someone before I started Fanbytes. The reason why is because I think it was Oscar Wilde who said this. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. In a business context, that means everything that you're trying to do in business has actually been done by someone else. And all you need to do is learn and understand how they've done it. So I actually wish that what I had done was gone to a small company where I had a much closer proximity to the CEO or the decision makers, and then learned from there about all the mistakes and the things not to do, and then applied it to my business. So many aspiring entrepreneurs come to me and they say, I want to quit my job, and then I want to go and start a business. And I actually say, I don't think you should do that. I think what you should do is go and work in an environment which is 
fast pace, where you're exposed to how decisions are made, where you're also in the flow of money. So by that, I mean in a sales role, a marketing role, something where by your inputs, you can influence and make more money. Because you will learn way more there on someone else's dime then you then actually go in to start something off your own and then just getting completely flustered and just getting completely perplexed when things go wrong. I like that. I mean, obviously that's the path I took. I wasn't, I was 29 when I quit to start my own company. The only problem with working for someone else is I feel like the people, the entrepreneurs that I meet who started off being entrepreneurs, you learn how to fail very quickly and you're happy with it. When you go into the corporate life, when you work a nine to five, I feel like it's easier to get complacent mm. and become less tolerant of risk and become golden handcuffed. Yeah. And that can make it pretty difficult to leave because you're used to the luxuries of this nine to five, the comfort of having the security and stability. So I, I see both sides. I agree with that. You know, golden handcuffs are very real. I have several friends who I want to shake them and go, please go do it. Go do it. You are insanely smart. You're determined. But they're getting paid up 200 grand a year. And they have kids. And I go, I get it. I get why it's a bit of a leap. So I do agree with you on that as well. But do whatever you can to basically improve your skill set. That for me is the thing. I have a framework that I call the money mountain. And... It's basically the four parts to wealth. And at first you have a job and you are basically doing one thing over and over and over again. Then the next part is you take your skills from your job and then you turn it into some kind of freelance or a service approach where someone is paying you for your expertise. So it's not so much that your money is tied to your time. And then the next step is that you hire people who also have that skill set. And then now you're basically taking the same skill set, but you're bringing more people into it to scale it. And then the fourth is where you then turn it into like a productized service or a larger business where you use technology and software. And that money mountain approach where you go from, I have a job and I'm learning the skill then I'm using that skill to be able to help other people where they're paying for my expertise. And then hiring people where I'm being able to scale my expertise. And then I'm using technology or online to then scale it to a bigger path and that becomes a business. I think anyone can do that. I think the main thing that you really want to focus on is learning skills that the market finds very valuable. If you don't have skills now, you can easily learn skills that other people would pay for. What do you think are the most valuable skills that you can learn? I think the best skills for anyone to learn are skills that help other people make more money. So by that, I mean learning things like copywriting, learning things like sales and marketing. Because all of those, if you're able to go to someone and say, through my sales, through my copywriting, through my marketing, I can help you make more money then that is probably the easiest conversation you can ever have. So those three, I would bucket as the most important skills to learn. If your end goal is, I then want to then go and build a business. So the other thing I believe is, I don't believe everyone should become an entrepreneur, but I believe everyone should learn how to make money. And those are two separate things. Learning how to make money is learning how to develop skills and then getting other people to pay you for them. And that can be done in a side hustle. That can be done just through an Etsy store, a Shopify store or something. 
you don't have to then go be the entrepreneur who goes and raises money and gets the VC season and builds a large team and does all of that stuff. You have to be able to run your own race without feeling pressure to go play a bigger game if you just don't want to. How do you think people can know whether they are meant to be an entrepreneur in the sense of running a large company from the ground up or whether they should go the side hustle route? What are you looking for to figure out who you are? I have a bit of a weird belief, which is I don't believe that most of the successful entrepreneurs believe they were going to build a big business at the beginning. If I speak from my perspective, I didn't think Fanbytes would be as big as it'd be. I just started and I thought, well, we could build something which could be a two million pound business. And maybe at some point we'll sell it to Snapchat and we'll make like five million or something. I think that's the case with a lot more entrepreneurs. So I don't think that you know specifically if you're destined to build a large business. I think what you do is that you start incredibly small, you solve a problem for someone, then you solve a problem for more people, then you then need more people to solve that problem. And then in five years, you wake up and you go, wow, look at all these people in the office. I think for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, when they're starting their business, they think that they should be for everyone. And the best kept secret is actually you should focus on a very small segment of the market so that they can see you as a reliable choice. And then afterwards, you can then expand. Facebook started out for kids who went to Harvard and then they expanded out to Ivy League schools. And now look where Facebook is. eBay was just a site for collectibles. Amazon was just a site for books. Everyone started off and just focused on a specific niche and then they expanded from there. But when you're starting a business, it can seem so easy to try and spread yourself too thin. You have to focus at the beginning. Most of you will know that I've had some ups and downs with my health this year, but I've made a promise to myself that I want to prioritize my health and Copilot is making that so much easier for me. Copilot removes all the stress of working out and fits perfectly around my schedule. Here's how it works. When you sign up, you get partnered with your own personal trainer. They make your workout plan for you based on your needs. And they check in with you regularly to make sure that you're on track. And it's all on an app. So wherever you are, you can do your workouts and get encouragement from your trainer. Recently, I got back from a super busy business trip. My trainer noticed I hadn't been as active, so she sent me the sweetest video message to encourage me to do a quick workout. It's an amazing feeling having an accountability partner. That's how great Copilot is. They're invested in you as a person, not just as a user. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com slash copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot, Erica is with a K, to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. I'll put the link in the show notes. I think that's so true too. There's this concept of shiny object syndrome where when you're building a business, every opportunity seems exciting and you're kind of trying to decide what to pursue. Yeah. How do you think about avoiding shiny object syndrome and focusing on the one thing or two things that matter? How I avoided shiny object syndrome was by having a co-founder who kept me on the straight and narrow. <laughs> I think if I didn't have my co-founder Ambrose, I don't think Fanbytes would have succeeded. And it's not because he had some amazing skill that meant, and yes, he was quite skilled, 
but it was because every single day we would talk about fanbytes. Every single day, all our problems and our concerns would be about fanbytes, not about something else. And so when I speak to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs and they say stuff like, should I have a co-founder? I say, yes, but actually not because of complementary skills. It's actually because then you have someone who keeps you focused on the mission and not on the next shiny object. Because trust me, especially as things start to work very well, there will be whole new opportunities for you. And you would constantly be like, hmm, maybe I should try that one. Maybe I should try that one. And a co-founder keeps you focused. So true. Even now when I look at my inbox, like the, you know, should I do a book? Should I do a Mm. TV show? It's a lot of opportunities come to you. And especially as you gain traction, more opportunities come. So there's more temptation to fall into this shiny object syndrome. So it's pretty hard to stay focused, especially for creatives who like to pursue everything. (laughs) It is incredibly hard. And I think you kind of also want to have a goal and work backwards from that goal and be confident in the plan for that. I had a goal, which was before 30, I want to be able to be in a position where I could retire from life. That was a phrase that I used, retire from life. And I said, what do I need to have in order to be able to retire from life? Okay, I need this amount of money here. Given what I am doing now, what is the best vehicle to get me to that money? And it was, well, Bambites seems to be working. People seem to want it. And now here comes a boring bit. And the boring bit is just doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And if you internalize that actually most of business success is actually quite boring. It's just, I know I have to do this. I don't really want to do this now, but I'm just going to do it over and over and over again. And if I do it over a long enough period of years, ta-da, the business is now a success. If you almost internalize that, the plan will be boring and it's not going to be the most exciting thing every single day. You're halfway on the way to success. Isn't it funny now, though, that you have enough money to retire for life, yet you're nowhere near that kind of lifestyle. You have no desire to do that. It's so interesting because you hear a lot about people who have maybe won the lottery or they've done well in something, and then they get depressed. I remember reading stories about people who had won the lottery or they'd done well in business, and they say they're depressed. And I remember reading this and going, you are in the top 0.01% of people and you are depressed. What the heck is wrong with you? (laughs) And the reason why is because they didn't have a plan for their life after they made the money. They didn't have a vision for themselves after they made their money. And that was something which I was very intentional about afterwards. I thought, well, what do I want to do after I've made the money? And so it's very important if you're listening to this, that you almost paint two scenarios, which is what do I have to do in order to get to my end goal? And then once I've got that end goal, what does that help me do for the rest of my life? Rather than thinking, well, once I've got the money, then I'm done with life. Because actually, you're never truly done with it. Yeah. And it's very easy also when you set goalposts in life to move them. Yeah. A lot of people, you hear them say, okay, once I make a million dollars, I'll be happy. Yeah. And then it becomes five and then it becomes 10 and then a hundred. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure you and I know so many people who have been through that shift in the goalpost. I guess, in your opinion, what do you think the hack is to ensure that you don't keep moving the goalpost? I actually don't think it's a problem to move the goalposts. Okay, interesting. I think it's fine to 
set goals. And then once you achieve them, realize that in order to keep going and finding a way to work towards something, you set another goal. So I don't think it's a problem. I think honestly, if you are hitting your goalposts, that means that you've undersold your abilities to yourself. Mm, I think there's definitely some truth in that. I also do think in terms of goals and happiness, that an underrated hack is not saying, I will be happy when X happens. And actually saying, I am happy on the journey to X. That was a big mistake I made. That was a huge mistake I made. I was a young person living in a council estate or the projects. And I thought, wow, once I make enough money and get out of this place, then I will be happy. And the truth is when Fanby started making money and I realized, okay, I'm in a comfortable position now. I had a bit of a crisis because I thought to myself, okay, now what? And I had to write to myself. I had to write a letter to myself to say, this is what you worked for. Now, what are you going to do about it? And then I realized that the thing that was driving me was actually just being part of the game, being part of the growth, doing something that I could constantly level up my skill set and my knowledge about. And if you don't do that, if you don't proactively ask yourself, what am I doing this for? You may end up just waking up one day and thinking, well, what am I doing this for? Then you end up in a bit of a spiral. I want to go back to your money mountain because I thought this was so interesting where as you're going through the money mountain, the money becomes more passive. Yes. So the beginning when you are working for a paycheck, it is the definition of active income. But as you go through each stage where essentially stage two, you're a freelancer, you're offering out your services to other people. Stage three, essentially an agency, you've trained people on that skill set and you're managing those people and then hopefully you can exit that. And then stage four, where you've created a essentially a software productized service yeah. or something where you really could just hire a CEO to take your place. That is quite literally the definition of passive income. And that's the stages I think everyone should go through to create passive income. What do you advise to people who say to you, I want to create passive income? So I don't think there's anything as truly passive income. And I think that it always starts off with some kind of active work. Even when you have a passive machine, like a business which is paying you every single month, actually at the beginning, you have to do a lot of active work. And I think on social media, what people get misconstrued is that something should be passive directly from the time that they get involved in it. And so what you generally want to internalize is, let's say you say, this is going to take me three years. For the first year, I am going to actively pursue this and I'm going to work on it. And I'm basically going to build a machine which can exist without me. And then in two years afterwards, that's when it becomes passive. I don't think there's anything truly that immediately from the off becomes your passive machine. The other thing that I think is very important is when you're thinking about passive income or building any sort of side hustle, you should look firstly at what you are actively good at. And then you should think about how that can help solve other people's problems. So often I tell people, get a sheet of paper and write, what am I good at? 
And then just keep writing anything you can think about that you're good at, which perhaps comes easier to you, but not to other people. And eventually what you would find is perhaps on row 81, there's, oh, this thing comes easier to me. Who would want their problem solved through this skill that I have? And then you can build a business around it. Because often what happens is you might not think that you're good at anything, but the truth is everyone is good at something. And the thing they're good at is somewhat desirable by someone else in the world. You just need to match the thing that you're good at to the problem that those people have. Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell people to do is go on Upwork, go on Fiverr, see what services people are willing to pay for. And on Upwork, it's nice because you can see how much the yeah. person on Upwork has earned. So if that person has earned over $100,000 offering their copywriting services or their translating content to Spanish services, you know that that is a marketable skill. And if you have that too, there is demand in the marketplace for that. The biggest thing about side hustles is that you have to serve existing demand rather than trying to invent new demand. This is something so many people get confused by. If you're trying to do a side hustle to your job, you almost want to pick the path of least resistance. Just look where people are spending money and then just go in there and be like, yep, I'll have some of that money as well. As you said, if you go on Upwork and you find out, wow, this person made half a million translating English to French. Well, I also know how to do that. I'm just going to set up my Upwork profile, maybe just be a bit cheaper than him. Then I'm going to do it. I'm going to crank up my reviews. And then suddenly I've just taken a portion of that money. That's the model for the perfect side hustle. Yeah. And a lot of times on those sites like Upwork, discoverability is hard when you're just coming on. But I tell people, go offer your services to your friends first at a highly discounted rate. Really do a great job for them. Get those reviews. So then you have five five five-star reviews collected. And then you're going to find strangers from around the world who are willing to pay you for those services. The reason why people don't do that is because they are fearful their friends might say no. They're fearful that they may embarrass themselves because their friends would be like, oh, what's that thing that you're doing? So you have to push through that. And then the third thing is they don't want to work for free. And you kind of have to push yourself through that. The first ever campaign that we did at Fanbytes was 300 pounds. That's like $500 to a large brand. And then by the end, we were selling half a million dollars. And so... In five years, we went from $500 to half a million dollars. We knew that $500 was incredibly cheap, but we kept doing it so we could get the case studies. So don't be embarrassed, push through the fear and lose the ego. It's completely fine to work for free at the beginning because you need case studies and you need evidence for you to keep going. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. 
And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. But I think it's so funny because online there's this huge narrative of do not work for free. Nothing in life is free. But I, I actually think that is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I get really sick of these people on social media who <laughs> say stuff, which is just absolute crap. Like, do not work for free. All right, fine. But how on earth are you going to get people at the beginning to believe in you and to test your product if you don't work for free? Because those same people, if you offer them something for free, they take it. So them saying don't work for free, but they take something for free is like the most... BS argument ever. That gets me really annoyed <laughs> when I see people give advice which basically sabotages aspiring entrepreneurs or aspiring business people, especially around side hustles. You don't have to reinvent the wheel for a side hustle at all. Where's Upwork or you know, uh, Upwork or Fiverr or uh, Uber Eats? Basically, there's all these different things where people are already spending money. All you need to do is look at how people are spending the money and then just be in the flow of money by basically giving something that's either slightly differentiated or cheaper. That's your part to build a side hustle. I think one of the best points that you made was to drop your ego because ego, it is hard when you're starting something new to worry about how people are going to judge you. And I still to this day remember when I quit my law firm, all these people said, oh, Erica is fun employed now. Oh, what's she doing <laughs> on YouTube? That's so like, funny. Oh, this judgment. And it's scary. You have to drop your ego and just say, look, I am here to try. And that's more than you can say. hundred percent. And you have to realize that those people don't matter because at some point when you are successful, they will say, I knew all along. And then you will say, screw you. No, you didn't. So dropping your ego, realizing that they're projecting their insecurities onto you 
is a surefire way for you to succeed. The other thing that you almost need to internalize is every single person who does something different at some point in their life got told that the thing they were doing was wrong and then they just pushed through. And if you are doing anything different, whether it's your mom, your sister, sometimes even your kids, they will tell you the thing that you're doing is wrong because it flies in their face of what is possible. So you just have to keep doing it. Now let's talk about how to get to step three, where you are then hiring and training people under you to perform those services. So essentially you just take a managerial role and hopefully a little more passive. How do we get to step three? We get to step three by getting a sheet of paper and saying, what is valuable in this business? And then you ruthlessly focusing on that valuable thing and then getting people around you to do the things that are not as valuable. So let's say you were selling stuff on Etsy and that was your side hustle. And you'd got to a path where it was just you and you were doing well by running Facebook ads and all of that. You might then say, right, for me to scale, I basically just need to bang out more creatives and I need to run more Facebook ads. That therefore means that things like customer service and all of that is not something that you can focus on. And so you get a sheet of paper and you say, what is the number one thing that's going to get me from five grand a month to 20 grand a month? Well, it's running more Facebook ads and running more creatives. I'm going to focus on that. And then I'm then going to hire people who can do the other stuff, the customer service, the operational stuff. And you just tear away and away at all the things that are not that important. And eventually you will then again wake up one day and you'd go, wow, I am doing the most valuable thing every single day rather than doing all the other things. That's the way you get from step two to step three. I love that. And I also think when you are at step two, creating a job description of exactly what you're doing, all the different things. And we all know when you are at step two, you are wearing many, many hats. You are the salesperson, you're the customer service, you're the designer, you're everything. So create a job description for all the things you do and then create standard operating procedures. Anything that you do more than twice in your business has to have a standard operating procedure where you show in this booklet or whatever you create exactly what steps you're doing. You can even create a screen recording using a free app like Loom to then show, okay, here is, if I'm creating thumbnails on YouTube, here is how I create these thumbnails. That way, when you go train someone, they have the standard operating procedure to rely on. And that's how you can continue to scale out of it, like you were saying. Yeah, and and be comfortable with the fact that not everyone will be able to do it as good as you. But also be comfortable with the fact that there are people who can do it better than you. That holds a lot of entrepreneurs back because they either think, well, nobody can do it as good as me. Okay, but also 80% is good enough. Or they feel somewhat threatened to have someone who can do it better than them. But then how are you then going to grow to that next level? You know, that's something I'm actually, I preach it, but I'm very bad at practicing it. I really? Oh, I'm so bad. If it's not 100%, then like 80% feels like there's 20% missing to me. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to build something that is not relying on you, You just have to be happy with the fact that there are people who are not going to have the same incentives as you. If you're the owner 
and effectively you own the company, you are heavily incentivized to make it work. If you hire an employee, he or she is not incentivized to, they're just there to do a good job. And so the odds of them putting in 100% like you are with all your incentives is very unlikely. Earlier, I was talking to you about a few friends who had sold their companies for hundreds of millions. And they had that same issue and they had employees, 300 people, and still they suffered from not being able to delegate. That is a very pleasing thing to know. All the people who you look up to don't have everything together. For the money mountain, I want to finish on the fourth yes. one. So third, we just did. Third is you essentially have an agency where you've hired out, you've hired people to do most of the tasks within the business so that you can focus on the core revenue generating tasks mm -hmm. with the highest return on investment of your time. Now four is productized services, software, things that you can truly scale. Yeah. How do we go about entering territory for number four? Okay, so we've gone from working in a job to then being a freelancer to then building an agency of some sort. And now the next step we have to do is we have to then build some sort of software that can scale. There are a couple of steps to follow from this. The first one is that you have to look at the things that can be made repeatable and scalable, and that's where you start building the technology. So for example, with Fanbytes, we built a workflow tool which enabled brands to upload their brief, approve influencers, approve creative, and then be able to see the data in real time. The reason why we built that workflow tool was because actually when we had like an agency way, we had individuals who would send emails to the brand and say, all right, do you approve these influences? Then they put it into a Google sheet and they say, do you approve this content here? And then as the campaign was going on, they'll send them reports. That entire thing is something that happens every single campaign. So then we built technology to be able to do that. So the first step is to look at what can be made repeatable. So your standard operating procedures, and then how can that be technologified? And then the second thing is actually to ask yourself, is this something that I want to scale on a global level? Because actually, the truth is, most companies don't need to be national or even global businesses. They can just target a specific niche and then as a consequence of that become known as the best thing in that niche. And then the third thing is how does the technology allow me to have some kind of competitive advantage? Because the more you build software, if you do it well or you build really strong productized services, the more software and the more data that you're able to get, that can make you a more competitive company in the market. So we spoke about companies like Upwork, right? Upwork, the technology they've built enables them to be able to have supply from people in Kenya serving someone in Australia. And that makes them more competitive rather than just being, we only focus on the UK or we only focus on the US. So those would be the two or two or three frameworks that I'd use when I'm thinking about how to introduce technology into my services business. And actually on the topic of side hustles, one of the things that I think is very important around side hustles is that you don't need to cater to everyone. And actually the best side hustles I've seen 
are the ones which are like very weird. So for example, it's like, I have this teddy bear that I import from China and we sell it to mums who have kids who suffer from autism or something. And it's like a very set customer, a very set person that I'm selling to. And my whole business is I get teddy bears, sell it to the moms. I get teddy bears, I sell it to moms. I don't expand. I don't sell socks. I don't sell forks or spoons or knives. All I do is sell that. And so by focusing on that specific target customer, you can build a very profitable side hustle. Yeah, I like that. I like the going for things that are quite unique and also unsexy businesses. I was telling you offline earlier that I made my first million from a legal business that is just highly unsexy. I won't even describe it because listeners will tune out. But but there's a reason that there's opportunity there because it's not glamorous. Not many people are thinking, oh my gosh, my life dream is to start a company with legal services. But there's opportunity there. There's money there. There is. There is opportunity in the unsexiest of things. I have a friend who has a business in what he calls death tech. Sounds very scary, but it basically helps people with their wills and probates. And he is helping people in their time of need, but is also making money from it. And he said, it is one of the simplest businesses because other people don't want to get involved in it. But I'm genuinely helping people and I'm making money from it. I think actually on that note, one of my most controversial beliefs is don't follow your passion. And when you look on social media, a lot of people talk about, you know, find what you're passionate about and do what you love. And I think that there is a bit of a problem in that advice. And the problem is that you have a prescribed thing that you actually love. But the truth is, you can grow to love certain things because you become good at those things. So I don't believe in follow your passion. What I do believe is follow your skill set and then apply that skill set to a segment of the market that can help you make more money. Because you can be passionate about a whole range of things. That doesn't necessarily mean those are the things that make you money. On one hand, I know I get what you're saying. But on the other hand, I feel like unless you are passionate about something, it is very difficult to go through the time where things aren't profitable and things aren't working. Because we both know starting a business isn't an overnight thing. Doing something takes a lot of upfront time and effort Mm -hmm. to get to the point where you even break even Mm -hmm. and then get to profitability. And I feel like If you are doing something that you are not passionate about, it's a lot easier to quit before you're able to see that success. I agree, but I also don't believe that you need to be passionate about the actual subject matter of the thing. I think it's better to be passionate about the growing of a business than the actual thing. Because this is the God honest truth. I wasn't passionate about social media. I wasn't passionate about (laughs) influencer marketing. But I was passionate about growing a business. I was passionate about the skills I would learn in growing a business. I was then driven by the fact that I didn't want to fail. And I think those are enough of drivers rather than being passionate about the actual industry that you're in. I guess I've seen it on both sides. So the legal business, I was not passionate about it. Yeah. I saw an incredible opportunity. I saw the opportunity to grow and scale it very quickly. So 
I was passionate about the challenge of growing in skin. Mm, yeah. What I'm doing on social media where I am helping people get better with yeah. their money, that I am passionate about. I would do this for the rest of my life, even if there were no monetary reward. It is a much better feeling doing something that you are passionate about and also happens to put a roof over your head than something that where you're just kind of playing the game of business. Yeah. So I think that is true. I still tend to err on the side of be passionate about the growing of a business. Because the truth is, it could have been fanbind. It could have been a cookie business. It could have been a property business. I would have been incredibly passionate about the growth of the business and beating competitors and hiring the best people and not losing. And that's just the way that I'm wired. And I think the next thing, I will be a lot more passionate about the subject matter and the industry. And the reason why is because I've done the hard yards of basically going through something where I was just passionate about the growing of the business. And so perhaps it is a bit of a luxury, but I do think it's a luxury that I've afforded. What do you think is a mistake you made that you don't want others to make? I think my biggest mistake was believing in the Zuckerberg complex, which is when you look at successful businesses, they tend to focus on the individual. So you look at Facebook and you instantly think about Mark Zuckerberg. As an aspiring entrepreneur or as an early stage founder, tend to believe that the success of the business is down to the individual, i.e. down to you. And I think early on in Fanbytes, I believed in that. And I thought I needed to have the answers. And I also needed to have the questions. And everything was basically down to me. Until I internalized that behind Zuckerberg is Sheryl Sandberg. And behind her is a whole group of really highly capable, intelligent people. And by doing that, and by seeing myself as a leader who brings people together, that was a big inflection point between when Fanbase was doing kind of okay to then starting to shoot up. There is a graph that I drew to myself, and it goes like this, and then it goes up. That point there is when Timo lost his ego. And it is when I realized that I am not Superman, and actually I don't need to have the questions or the answers I should collect people. And then as a consequence of all our efforts, that's the way that we scale. I actually say that most entrepreneurs are in the people collection business. And once you internalize that, at the beginning, use your skills to solve problems. Once you know that you are solving a proper problem, then you are then going to get people to come together to do it. There's a thing I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, which is the first time you try something, you will mess up. The second time, you will mess up, but less than the first time. Then the third time, you will mess up, but less than the second and the first time. And then by try number eight, you will then start to be somewhat good at it. And the problem is a lot of people cannot withstand the first one to seven times and they don't get to number eight where you go, oh, finally it's clicked. Because none of us, yourself, myself, the best business people in the world, none of us just came into the world understanding business. We all failed a bunch of times and then eventually something kind of clicked and we just run with it. It's interesting how like almost everything that we're talking about the theme comes back to dropping your ego, being less afraid of failure, 
I mean, that ultimately seems like if you if you were going to ask for a solution to become an entrepreneur, that's kind of it. Yeah. And learn from other people. Like do not every single thing I know I have learned from someone because I didn't wake up and suddenly I knew everything. Right. I just learned from someone. In order to have it, you have to be able to drop your ego, but it's this curiosity to be open to learning. Yeah. And that's where you see things. And for me, the new businesses that I've been able to start are because I've been curious and I've asked people, hey, like, how are you doing this? How are you making money online doing this thing? And then you just see more opportunities with that. Yeah. And you ask enough people for them to give you a meaningful answer. Often people would ask one person and they go, oh, well, that person didn't reply. So I guess that's it. You probably want to ask like 20 people and then hope for one reply. And then that one reply would be so good that they might introduce you to another person who can then open this other door for you. So you almost at the beginning of anything have to really focus on having enough volume and having enough effort to do it for you to get the answer that you want. Do you have any mentors who have guided you? And what's the best advice they've given? So I don't have any mentors. I just read a lot about things that I'm trying to do. And I have a very specific way that I read about topics. I go on Amazon and I type in the keyword and then I rank by the top books and I buy the top three in that particular field. And the thing that I realized is that if you read the top three books in any field, they basically account for like 80% of most of the things that you know. So when I wanted to learn about internet marketing and funnels and all of that, I just read a bunch of books by Russell Brunson and ClickFunnels. And it was like, oh, all right, I get it. Dotcom secrets. Dotcom secrets, expert secrets. And then I read a book by Jay Abraham and I was like, oh, okay. Got it. And I think that when you realize that we are so fortunate to live in a world in which just through our efforts and through a laptop connection, we can invent the type of reality that we want, you just realize how liberating life actually is. I read a tweet somewhere which said, isn't it amazing to think with a few keystrokes on a laptop, you can change your life? And I just thought, wow, that is so true. Most of us don't need to go somewhere in a factory and load things up and fix things and break them. We just need to type in a specific way. And if you do it enough times, you can change your life. I love that. If someone wants to become a millionaire, what do you think are the three books they should read? First book, How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. It is the most unfiltered, honest book about the mindset required to get rich. The second book is called Dotcom Secrets. It's by a guy called Russell Brunson. The reason I love that book is because it is a step-by-step -step playbook on how to do marketing exceptionally well. And then the third is Be So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport and where he talks about the importance of having rare and valuable skills which you can exchange for money. So a mindset book, a marketing book, and then a lifestyle book. What do you think is the fastest way for someone to get their first $100,000? The fastest way to get to first 100000 is to be in a service business that helps other businesses make more money. And so instantly I'm thinking about things like content creation services, copywriting, email copywriting for brands, anything that can help 
another business make more money, if you charge them less than what you make them, that's a very easy conversation to have. There's a lot of money to be made in the helping people to make money. I know to build out a funnel, people now are charging $20,000 a funnel, which takes them like two weeks. So if they're doing two in a month, they're making $40,000. Yes, it's kind of crazy. But if you think about it, why does it work? Because the person knows, yes, I pay you $20,000. But if that funnel makes me $200,000, then all good. I'll make that transaction every single day. So with most side hustles or with most ways to make money, you want to make it a no-brainer for the person. And that is basically saying, if you pay me a dollar, I'll help you make at least $2. And I think what you're saying is so brilliant because you're essentially getting into the mind of the business owner. And the business owner is always thinking, is there a direct return on investment that I'm going to see by hiring Bob to help me with this? And there are some roles where the clear answer is no. There's some roles where it's like, "Mm, maybe, maybe if I spend $1,000 on his services, I'll make $1,000 back. And then there are some roles where it's a clear yes. If I spend $1,000 on her services, I'm going to make $10,000. So yeah, that's easy. And in fact, if she asked me for $2,000, that's still 5x return on money. Yes, those are the best businesses. And actually, if I relate it to Fanbytes, there was an inflection point in our revenue when we basically changed the way that we sold to brands, where rather than us saying, you'd get X amount of views and X amount of likes and comments and shares, we said, okay, we know with pretty good confidence that if you spend 50 grand on this influencer campaign, Given the influencers we're going to use and their reach and their click-through rate, we think you make back 100 grand. And instantly brands were like, well, where do I sign? Because this is such an easy conversation. I give you 50, I get 100. I'm just going to keep doing that every single day. Yeah, and that goes all the way back to when you were 17 years old and discovered this arbitrage of, oh, if I spend a dollar on Facebook marketing, I'm going to make more than a dollar. Therefore, it's a great use of my money. Yeah. Those kind of arbitrage things are so fascinating because once you discover them, you have to run full pelt at them because they're not going to be there every single time. And the best things is that the best arbitrages are in niches. So, you know, earlier I spoke about the teddy bear example, right? Selling teddy bears to mums, with perhaps like kids who have autism, the reason why that works is A, it's helping someone, but also it's very specific to that person. And it's an arbitrage thing because you're buying them from places like China, then you're selling them at a markup, and then you're selling to people in the UK or in the US. So those kind of arbitrage opportunities are really incredible for side hustles and then for full-blown businesses. I'm curious, what are some of the habits that you swear by? So I don't check my phone before midday. I have two phones. One is my normal phone. And then the other is my dud phone. And that only has Spotify on it. And so every day when I wake up, I just load up my dud phone. I play my morning soundtrack and then I just get on with life. And you don't check the other phone? Do you ever have a temptation to check it? I used to. But then what I do is I put it upstairs and the effort of going upstairs, I don't want that. So therefore, I just use my dud phone. I need that. Yeah. The other thing that I do is I write out the main three things I need to do the next day. I do that too. There you go. (laughs) And then the final thing I do is I lay out what I'm going to wear the night before. 
even if I'm just staying indoors. So I have my T-shirt, my cargoes, and my socks, and they're all laid out before. Because that then makes it very easy for me to get in the shower, sort myself out, put on my clothes, done. That's smart. It's a small hack which basically feels like every day you're just being sharper and sharper. What I don't do, however, I don't do morning meditation. I don't do morning yoga. I don't make my bed. I don't look at the stars and thank heavens for my life. I just get on with life because actually those things don't correlate in any way to your success, regardless of what the books tell you. They just don't. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Timo Taught Me. So what do you (laughs) want people to walk away being able to say, Timo taught me this? Timo taught me that lowering my ego and being a student from people who have done what I'm trying to do is the cheat sheet to my success. Amazing. There you go. Thank you so much. Cool. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.